The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Safe and sound, back from Bimini. Another nasty market reversal and probably many more to come. Yield spiking talk of a faster pace knocks bonds. And our guest today, Octavio Morenzi, CEO of Optimus. All this and much more on episode number 761 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. deep into April and, well, nothing seems to change. War rages on, prices continue to go up. Prices for goods, not necessarily markets, right? One thing that also has not changed is that we are here every week to figure this whole thing out. Sometimes with, well, education and sometimes with guests like we have today and sometimes just by talking through it, right? Just having a conversation where we're going to discuss What's happening with the world, economy, markets? Trying to understand a little bit better what exactly it is that is happening, how it is going to impact us. Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and welcome to the show, the place we call the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Thank you for your mail, your comments, and all the various nudges you had about, in particular, last week's discussion <laughs> Well, some of it was good, some of it well, not so good. We had agreements, disagreements, and that happens when we have a controversial guest on, not necessarily about all the topics that we talked about, but in particular about some of the issues related to the energy and how to solve the problems with what is going on with our energy debacle right now. Frank Curzio positioned in on what he thought was going to be some of the solutions and then where to go from here. So that was, a, I thought, a really enlightening conversation. Some of you think that, well, maybe it was a bunch of BS, malarkey, hoopla, and had no time for it. Others said, you know what, there's some good points right there. But in the end, what are we trying to really accomplish here? We're trying to understand and to figure out where we can put our money to best earn and to protect from a variety of different items. Right now, the protection mechanism is about the rising prices of goods. Now, I went to the gas tank, you know, the gas station this week because I had to put some, some gas in. And it was back down to about where it was two weeks ago. I think it was $4.19. That may be a little higher, a little bit lower than you pay in your area. But I remember about a month and a half ago, it was $3.49 when there was a spike. And yes, it does come down a little bit slower. But as we saw throughout the week, this week, and due to the fact of the announcement of a release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserves stockpile by the U.S., a million barrels per day, and no change or no substantive change by the OPEC region and OPEC Plus in what's happening there. Europe not uh, putting sanctions on, on Russia on the fuel side. 
that is, or not slowing down their consumption of Russian fuel, is not putting pressure on other areas. So all in all, right now, we saw that oil, the WTI crude, came down below the $100 mark, which is a good sign because that is an enormous component of inflation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about inflation and what's going on with that with our guest today. So let's kind of put that in the corner, put a little pin in it and put it to the side and we'll get to that. A few other things that are going on. If you are a follower of DH Unplugged, myself and John C. Dvorak on Tuesdays, we get together and you can listen to us live, of course, or you can listen to it on your podcast app that you have out there. Well, there was no episode this week. And that was because it was John's birthday. And he said, you know, we're celebrating with my family and uh, there's no way we could do a show. And we usually don't cancel. So it's got to be something pretty big or maybe even just a vacation. Maybe I'm going to go out on a limb here. Three times in a year, we cancel shows approximately. So the bottom line is that when we see something like this, we got to pay attention. But the good news was that I was able to have dinner with my old pal, Adam Curry, known as the pod father for some, but he was in town for something I'm going to talk about in one second. Uh, actually, he wasn't in town for this conference. What, what happened was he was on his way somewhere else and the airlines really went just ass up with cancellations, delays, and he said the hell with it and he decided to come to Fort Lauderdale. So we had dinner together with uh, his beautiful wife, Tina, and we caught up on a variety of things. You know, I know Adam back from the Mevio days. I think it was back in 2008 when this whole thing started. And when we're getting together, trying to put together the concept of what would this world of podcasting look like? And he was obviously the man involved in that. I was just on the microphone on my old shows doing my thing between um, the variety of shows that I had back then. And some of them obviously continue to this day. But it was a great dinner. Now, let's kind of move over into the area of the Fed because we saw the Fed was making some noise this week. And also Elon Musk, of course, made some noise this week because that's what he does. There's some pretty wild announcements on both sides. We had the purchase of a 9.5% share of Twitter in a passive mode by Elon Musk, something that he wants to obviously create in some changes. And even though he's clearly going to be active in this investment and he's going to get a board seat until he gets to a point of being bored or can't make any changes or whatever happens, or maybe even takes over the entire company. Who knows what's going on? But something was weird there because of this odd filing of being passive and then talking about how there's going to be a lot of changes and how the president and CEO said, hey, Elon Musk coming aboard. It's going to be great. Oh, wow. And then him having a board seat, which is clearly an active position. Weird. Fed talking about rolling back their purchases to a point not only of scaling back of where they are now, zero purchases of bonds and why yields are spiking above the, well above the 2.5% on the 10-year. We saw some yield inversion on the 2 and 10 earlier in the week and 5s and 7s and 10s. Lots of things that people are talking about. You'll hear it all over the news about the concern of, oh my God, we're going to have a recession tomorrow because the yield curve inverted. No, 
It takes a while and it takes an economic slowdown, not just a yield curve inversion. A yield curve inversion is theoretically a sign, an indication that there are parties that believe there is going to be a situation where we do see a potential for a slowdown in the economy because banks and lenders don't necessarily lend out in those circumstances. And the lack of lending and a lack of liquidity in the economy forces a slowdown. The Fed wants to force a slowdown. There was comments even this week about, hey, if stocks don't come down, one of the Fed um, Fed leaders said, if stocks don't come down, we're going to have to force them down. In other words, they're trying to invert, reverse the wealth, the wealth effect that we've seen over the last, I don't know, decade, two decades. That was really pressed since 2008 under Bernanke. So there's something going on and why markets are very jittery and realize that while markets are jittery, it does create some opportunities. And there are certain areas within the market that do very well. But right now, that noise is creating volatility. And volatility is something that's very dangerous. We'll talk about that again with our guest today. I hope. At least I'll write that down as an area that I want to get to. Finally, before we get to our guest, I want to talk about the conference that I was at, why Adam Curry was down uh, on a panel with David Portnoy, moderated by Max Kaiser. And it was the Bitcoin 2022 conference in South Beach. And I was invited down to a cocktail party. There was beards and bros. There was baseball caps. There was all sorts of people sitting in corners with laptops. And it was a cool vibe. The billboards as I drove down to Miami were all about blockchain and crypto and cash apps and lightning and anything related to the crypto space. They took over in a massive way, like every single billboard on 395, 195, and 95, which are the roads that I traveled. And I can only imagine that beyond there, the side streets, because you did pull up and there were all sorts of banners and trucks and things. I'm sure there was planes going over with banners as well. There was a great announcements and speakers that went on. The trade station, congratulations for the bull. If you haven't seen this, uh, look, look this up. Look up the Bitcoin bull Miami that was designed by the dude who created the Transformers. An enormous, I mean, huge bull to take on the bull in on Wall Street downtown. That is the cornerstone of the financial markets in the world, right? Now declaring that Miami is the capital of capital. Taking over for New York. Mayor Suarez was all about it. Really quite an amazing event. Again, this vibe was pretty impressive. And I spent some time, met a variety of people, CEO of StockTwits, spent some time uh, with him. Some people of TradeStation, the president, who was all aglow, John Borman, congratulations on what you put together for the Bitcoin of what you're doing with your firm, as well as what is going on with regard to this uh, conference, this huge conference, amazing conference. Again, it was it was. There was a lot going on. I was talking to a variety of people about the various projects that they were working on from trading 
to transaction, to um, building apps on the network. A lot of it was way over my head and uh, I was able to understand it, but not, I don't think, all of it. It's pretty complex technology. But I, I, I do think that it was worth a review of the event. If you have the opportunity to maybe watch some of the replays of uh, the videos that were down there, the people speaking, really a neat atmosphere overall. And, and I was really happy to see that. So there you go. All right. Now, I think it's time that we turn our attention to the guest du jour. And our guest today is Octavio Morenzi. He's co-founder and CEO of Optimus, and he directs the firm's research in the area of equities trading, asset management, regulation, more information, of course, at Opimus, O-P-I-M-A-S dot com. And um, hey, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about uh, and break down what you do, because Optimus pursues, as, as it says in on your website, it pursues an entirely open approach to knowledge sharing, providing clients with direct access to your entire pool of intellectual capital. And I know you've you've been in a variety of different positions, um, all related, interrelated over the years and created some national expansion strategies for U.S. derivatives exchanges. Um, tell me about what it is that is so exciting about your firm and what you're doing now. I suppose we're a research and consulting firm focused on, on the capital markets. So what we do is advise our clients in terms of how they should position themselves there, what strategy they should pursue or not pursue. Uh, we've done a lot of work over the course of the past year and a half in the fintech space, looking at mergers and acquisitions uh, opportunities. So our clients call us in to sort of analyze those uh, targets and see whether it makes sense or not. Uh, we're looking at a large bank takeover right now. We're working with a client looking at that. So those are the kinds of things that we get involved in. Um, why is it exciting? I don't know. I, I, I find capital markets sort of a fascinating place to be. I, I, it's a fa fantastic industry. It's all uh, all virtual, I suppose. It's all digital. Uh, there's no machinery and inventory and things like that, and people earn money nevertheless. So I think right. it's you, can't cut your, you can't cut yourself in your job. It's difficult to do. You could, you could fall under a photocopier or something like that. That that might happen or something like that. But uh, no, overall, it's a low risk, low physical risk uh, kind of profession. And you are um, the and and you in your situation is could we call it uh, financial due diligence and and workups? Is that with a lot of what you're doing now? That's what we've been doing a lot of over the course of the past year and a half. Uh, in the past, we've looked a lot sort of at, at market structure of the capital markets, of exchanges. Uh, we've looked a lot of sort of the technology role within that. Uh, so that and the operations of financial institutions. So that's that's basically sort of what we focus on. But I'd say I'd say we're basically a, a management or strategy consulting firm focused on capital markets. That's our exclusive focus. But when you say capital markets, explain that to uh to the every person that's listening, right? Not just me that may understand or you that has a clear knowledge of it. Explain what capital markets is. Well, so capital markets is basically stocks and bonds. Uh, any sort of investment you might make, 
uh, in the stock market or buying bonds or with derivative instruments and things of that sort. So anything that's tangential to that in terms of the technology, the operations, business strategy to do with that, that's what we get involved in. So right now we're working with a client in Europe looking at a very large acquisition uh, uh, target in the post-trade arena. So everything that happens after you click on the button and do your trade, there's a whole bunch of exercise that has to happen afterwards, and they're looking to make a very big acquisition there. And they're asking the question, is this a good idea? What's the landscape look like? What do volumes look like in the future? Uh, should we do it or not do it? What should the valuation be? Uh, we get involved in fairly esoteric kinds of areas too. So we recently did projects in securities lending, where if you're short selling stock, you need to borrow it from, from somebody, which means someone has to lend it to you. So that's the space that we've got involved in, looking at how how margin requirements are evolving then, things of that sort. I would say that overall, though, the, the areas we're involved in is not sort of your everyday run-of-the-mill stuff. It's it's sort of fairly esoteric, specialized stuff that sounds a bit strange to the layperson. So let's talk about as a backdrop. Um, tell me about what's different about the markets, the capital markets, the process today versus, let's say, even five years ago and maybe even 10 years ago. Let's start with what you're seeing. That's There's got to be differences, right? Significant differences, I would say, right? You, you know, these, these things might move uh, more slowly than you think. So if, if I were to really compare the markets now uh, to 10 years ago, I'm not sure you'd see that much difference. Uh, but what happens is there's sort of periods where there's a very rapid evolution and then there's sort of a stasis that might last many years where sort of the dust settles and, and the winners and the losers appear. I suppose you could make the argument in the past 10 years, cryptocurrencies and digital assets of that sort appeared and that's sort of a new asset class. But if you look at sort of the your run-of-the-mill equities markets and, and bond markets, not really that much has changed. I mean, there's been a shift to, to high-frequency trading, to sort of algorithmic trading and things of that sort, but that was well underway already 10 years ago, even more. So I don't know if there's been that much of a radical change in the last 10 years. If you go back maybe further, 15, 20 years, then you can see some very, very big differences and big shifts in terms of how capital markets were stru structured. But the fundamental structuring is about the same. There's some new regulations, there's some new requirements here and there that needs to be taken into account. Uh, but overall, it's the, the basic structure of it has been fairly static, I would say, the past 10 years. So, so the structure's been the same in the back end. It's like the plumbing is the same, right? But the front end is much different, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's not the people really. who are flushing the toilets are different than the though If I want to say, yeah, I, I mean, if I want to take that analogy, it's different people. I guess that there's there's some differences. I, I guess what we've seen over the course of the past ten years is maybe a bigger shift away from the institutional investor to the retail investor. So retail traders make up a much much larger portion of things. We've seen a shift to basically free trading. So that's a big shift on the retail side, where basically you don't pay to trade anymore. You trade as much as you want and you don't pay anything anymore. And so you have to scratch your head a bit and sort of think, well, how are these guys making money if if I'm not paying anything? They must be making it up someplace else. Um, so I guess those are shifts we've seen. Now I'm starting to think about shifts and change we've seen over the course of the past 10 years. That's sort of a dramatic shift that we've and change that we've seen. Uh, the rise of the retail investor, the rise of crypto, free trading, those, I think, are the major things that we've seen. And maybe a bit of an internationalization where investors are more likely to look overseas for investment opportunities as well. So I think those are the, yeah. the basic shifts we've seen. That, that You know, it's interesting because there was a home country bias. And, and we've talked about that on the show 
with our friend Mib Faber, who is a big, um, uh, you know, he, he, he's someone who's really brought that to the fore. The idea that, hey, you know, I live in the U.S., so therefore I'm going to invest in U.S. companies because I don't know what particular company does in XYZ com- country, right? Uh, and, and therefore, if I don't know about it, can't be good. Or, I, or, or I'm not even going to invest in a country at all because it's not here. And, and that's kind <laughs> of, uh, I think, a very fascinating mindset. So... Well, so if, if you if you if you live in a very big country like the U.S., then then maybe you can get away with that. Right. Uh, you know, I live in in Austria, as I mentioned to you before, and and frankly, we don't have that many investment opportunities there because not that many big companies around. So so you have to look outside. So you're you're going to look into into neighbouring Germany or Italy or the U.K. first. But once you've crossed over a border, crossed over into another language, is that much easier than to go a bit further, at least sort of mentally and, and psychologically. Um, but I think for a lot of people, yes, there's a, a question of currency risk. There's a question of different reporting requirements. There's a question I don't really understand the annual reports. But frankly, once you start to read them, they will look about the same. And there's a, there's a big companies outside of the U.S. to to invest in that uh, that are worth looking at. So there's some, there's some very big players there. So now that you mention it, you open the door. There you go. So let's talk about the hot dogs in Vienna for a second here. Because Czechoslovakia, Vienna, they have these really cool hot dog carts. You can back me up on this, right? <clears throat> sausages, if you will. Um, but they have these, Have you've had these, where they have these very, let's call it, uh, let's call it about a foot long uh, roll that they have, and they take it, and there's a spike on the cart, and they spike the roll, and it creates a hole in the in the roll. You know what I'm talking about, right? Absolutely, yes, right, definitely, yeah. yeah. Then they take it, and they put this very different flavors. It could be a garlic something. It could be a regular. It could be whatever you want. They shove a dog down there, and then they start filling it up with all sorts of junk, various flavored, maybe ketchup and mustard and stuff. And then they start throwing other junk in there. And then you get this very, see, this is the problem with the hot dog. A hot dog has an open side to it in the U.S., right? So when you take a bite out of it, it gets all over your face. It could drop on the floor. It's very, it's a messy character, isn't it? <laughs> right, it's been, it's been a while since I had hot dog, but absolutely yes, right? yes. And a hamburger, if, for that you, matter, you is open on all sides. Squeezes out everywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah, and a hamburger is right, open right. on all sides. You take a bite on one side of the hamburger, it spits out the other side of the hamburger. Not in Vienna, they've mastered it, where they encapsulate the entire dog and just a hole in the top all the way down. So you're eating this thing like you know you can take it wherever you want, and they're delicious. You can indeed. And it, it doesn't dribble, it doesn't drip, ah. except at the very end. At of the course. very end, it's a bit problematic, but then yeah, you have yeah. to deal with that. Well, wait, maybe somebody will come up with a solution for that. But kudos on your hot dog designs from Vienna, I must say. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> please, I can't claim any credit for it. I please tell the president it. and the uh, Congress about that. I appreciate next that. Time I, next time I see them, <laughs> I'll let them know. Yeah. Let's talk about the yield curve, because that's something I, th- I, I do believe was an area that you have been talking about. Um you know, this whole idea about an inverted yield curve, a harbinger of a recession, and the idea that, oh, my goodness gracious, it, it touched, it inverted. Which one is it? Now, here's what's fascinating about this. In the U.S., which, of course, the U.S. is a very large component of what happens in the world. We know that. I mean, obviously, our economy is big enough to really sway the rest of the world. When we see that the yield curve starts to invert in certain areas, and we have a pretty wonky looking yield curve right now, what are what what are we what what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think? Well, it's 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 certainly true that the yield curve 
has has become inverted. But let's let's talk about what we mean by the steepness of the yield curve. And basically, that's the difference between long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates. And typically, what you find is short-term interest rates, sort of one month, two month, and up to about a year, are generally much lower than the long-term 10-year, 20-year, 30-year. I mean, not just cumulative, but per annum as well. Mm-hmm. So so mm-hmm. there's 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 a difference there. Uh, for, for certain business activities, that's really important. So if you look at the banking sector, they basically live off the yield curve in the sense that they borrow money from people in the form of deposits typically. Mm-hmm. That's very short term. Right. And, and sometimes they pay a bit of interest on savings accounts, but they haven't done that for years. Yeah. Um, and they lend out 30-year mortgages. So if they can lend out at a higher rate than they borrow the deposits, then they make a profit. And that's basically their interest margin, but the difference between the two. I mean, that's a gross simplification. Of no, but that's, that's what it is. They'll, they'll do that all day long. Why not? That's the way, the, the, the net interest margin, the spreads, the margins, that's, that's their business. It's kind of like the grocery store. If you could buy a bottle of ketchup for a dollar and sell it for a dollar 25, you'd do that all day. Once you have that ketchup that you buy for a dollar 25 and you got to sell it for a dollar 25, eh, maybe not. Doesn't look so good anymore. No, that's exactly okay. so. right. So as 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 the yield curve then flattens, you that that business becomes more possible, more more difficult. And if it gets inverted, i.e., the short term interest rates are higher than now than the long term interest rates, then of course that that business model is not really sustainable in the long term. And you have to figure out what you're going to do with that. But that's that's there's only very very brief moments. But I think what you see in general is that the the central bank, the Fed in this case. Uh, starts to look at the economy, starts to get afraid that it's overheating and then inflationary pressures are, are, are getting greater and greater. And that's certainly something we see now. And then you start to increase interest rates. And the central bank typically controls short-term interest rates much more than longer-term ones. And long-term ones are more difficult to control. But the, the short-term ones, they have pretty much absolute control over. So they can push the short-term interest rates up uh, to try and cool down the economy. And that's why that's a harbinger of a recession is basically a lot of business activity over the course of the past few years, either consciously or unconsciously, has become dependent on very, very low interest rates. And as the central bank takes those away, the low interest rates, certain business models are just going to flounder and not be viable anymore. So you see a recession happen. And that's why over the course of the past 50 years, an inverted or a flat yield curve has been a pretty good indicator, a pretty dependable, reliable indicator that a recession is just around the corner, maybe six to nine months out. But let's also explain something. I think it's really important to understand something, that the Fed, through their monetary action, whether it's buying bonds uh, with fake money or creating money and moving the money from the right pocket to the left pocket and somehow saying we have more liquidity in the system, and by pushing that out. And some of the things they did, of course, during the pandemic were a little bit uh, exaggerated, let's say the least, right? But what they have are very blunt tools to do one of two things. It's either push a little bit on the gas or tap on the brakes. And the very nature of the desire to, to create or to promote an expansion is one of their jobs. The other job is to promote contraction, which by its very nature is the definition of a recession. It's very Indeed. simple. It's very simple, right? It's not as complicated as you think. I mean, I think I think the, the central bank has made things just complicated enough that most people lose the thread and are not going to invest the time to figure out what they're doing and what they're up to and, and sort of obscure things. 
Uh, and that's purpose- wait, wait, yeah. that's purposeful. And that started many, many years ago. One of the the most fascinating examples of that was Alan Greenspan. When I don't care what education level you had, whatever he said was, uh, it was like another language that was only to him. It, indeed, and and that has been continued somewhat. I mean, I. I I don't agree with much of what the the officials from the Fed say. I think they have it a bit wrong in many cases. You know, you mentioned they overdid things during the pandemic. I think you're absolutely right there. Uh, but uh, at least we can understand them again. But that's not true everywhere. You know, in Europe, we've got Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the European Central Bank, probably the world's second most important central banker. I can't understand a word she ever says. I, I don't None understand what she says, and I really never liked her all the way from the IMF to the EU. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really watch didn't her that care much for at her. the IMF. Didn't I didn't care for her. No. Yeah, yeah, she's sort of yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say she's slippery, like an appealing person. slippery, slippery. Exactly, that's the word. Slippery and and evasive and and not clear at all in terms of what. She, and maybe she doesn't know. And she probably you know, she, drinks pims, and that just really just throws the whole thing right out. Are you not a pims drinker? No, of course not. I mean, I will drink pims once a year at Wimbledon. But you so, probably eat so. marmite too. No, no, I could never do that. Ah, uh, see, now I, I like I, you. Marmite. I'm never, I'm never able to eat Marmite. Marmite's tough. Uh, as I describe Marmite, it's a English breakfast food which basically has the consistency of salted tar. Yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> and that's being generous. <laughs> I had, I by the way, just to kind of segue back to food for a second, if I may, <laughs> my friend just opened up a wonderful English pub on sausage rolls and the Scottish eggs and his salmon are just phenomenal. Excellent. Fantastic. Oh, anyway, continue. Sorry. So we're talking about Christine Lagarde. But, I mean, she's been, I, I think, in, in all honesty, she might be a bit out of her depth. I mean, she's a lawyer by training. I don't know if she really knows that much and understands that, that much about monetary policy. I think she was able to get ahead a, a sort of because of political connections she had and things of that sort and was able to leverage then the IMF into the ECB role and and, and advance that way. But I'm, I'm not sure she has that. A stronger grasp on on what's really going on there, but I think the Fed officials do, and I, I I think they're sort of between a rock and a hard place now. They've pumped so much liquidity into the market; it's coming back to haunt them in the form of inflation. And the only way to get that under control is to to crater the markets. I think they're going to have to jack interest rates sky high for for years to come. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, and, I would, I would and, agree with you. Know, I think Europe is in a much worse situation because they have the negative yields, number one. Number two, their proximity to Russia, their dependence on Russia with with uh, oil. Because I don't see even if we snap our fingers and have an end to this conflict right now, this second, and everybody goes back and says, oh, I'm very sorry, and everybody shakes hands and makes up and just retracts entirely. I, I don't know how the Russian situation in terms of energy is going to get much better. Um, I don't see how it could. You know, there's, there's. I mean, I think what might happen is the whole green agenda gets abandoned, uh, and that that might be or rethought in large part because, for for whatever reasons, I don't quite understand this. They've in the EU taxonomy now of of sustainable energy sources, they've classified natural gas as a sustainable energy source. Now that's nonsense because it's a it's a CO2 producer. You're burning the gas. It creates water and CO2. At least I think I remember that from high school chemistry. It certainly is a CO2 producer. But it well, is a fossil fuel. And there, it's a fossil fuel. It is a fossil. It's a fuel. fossil fuel. I mean, it's it a, is. No, it's, it's, 
it's cleaner than than burning anthracite coal or or, right. or burning oil that has sulfur in it and stuff like that. It's, it's certainly cleaner than that. In that, it only produces CO two and 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 water, but it, it is a fossil fuel. But they've classified it as as green. So there's been a shift away from from other fossil fuels, coal, oil, uh, and from nuclear power as well towards natural gas and. They can reverse reverse that certainly. It means undoing some of those decisions, and they can reduce the dependency on 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 natural gas and and go much more into nuclear power, for example. Which is the case in France, for example. It's it's a country where eighty percent of the electricity is generated by uh, by nuclear power, and there's a much much heavier dependence on electricity for things like home heating and stuff like that. As a result, but uh, Germany's sort of in a bind there. They've 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 cornered themselves. They've snookered themselves basically, and and uh, are now sort of. She stuck. left just in time, didn't she? Uh, Merkel. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think she she her, her sense of timing was absolutely perfect. Yeah, thank yeah. you and good night. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about and, and roll back again to this yield curve issue. And I think it's fascinating that in the U.S. The concern about the 210, we know that the 5, the 7, 10's inverted. The Fed's like, oh, no, 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 no. You see, we're not really concerned about the 210 because it's an imperfect gauge. While we do know that recessions have always been after we've seen, or the 210 inversion has always preceded a recession, but not necessarily every 210 inversion has been the, uh, a re- has a recession happened from. They're like, well, you know what? We really look at the three-month and the 10-year, and I'm thinking, What? How does that even work? That would be well, bad. That would be really bad. The three month and the ten. I mean, I've got the numbers right in front of me. If we want to, they're not even close. Them. Yeah, but um, you know what? What has happened is over the course of the past month or so, is that we've seen basically all the interest rates, sort of the 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 one year, even the six month, and up go up quite significantly. So the, the yield curve, if you look at it, one year out to thirty years is flat. However, the very short-term interest rates are still very low. The one month is, is basically a zero. It's a 0.2% or something like that. That really hasn't budged. And that is interesting. So in, in, a, in a real way, if you look at the very short-term interest rates and compare them to two years and up, the, the yield curve has actually steepened, mm. not flattened, and certainly not inverted. Now, that's going to be, as I mentioned before, that, that might be really good for, for banking activities or, or net interest margin at banks, depending on on how they've structured their balance sheet and what their assets and liabilities are. But each bank is going to be a bit different there. So, but we really don't know uh, what is the duration of your, your bank's balance sheet on the asset and liability side. But that could be good for certain people playing on certain parts of the yield curve. But I think the point is that the Fed has not really seen to it that short-term interest rates go up. They've stayed very, very low. And what's happening in sort of the middle of it, the yield curve, the two, the one to, to, to 10 year, that has gone up. Um, but so I don't quite know what they're doing. Uh, well, neither they, they, I, hey, by the way, here's a secret. Neither do they. That that could be. I, I think they they think they could just talk their way out of the right. Um, right. The, the communication uh, strategy. That's what they think it's all about. Yeah. And, and the problem is when you see Brainerd come out and others talking about how they're just going to rip down the um, well, and you know. We could look at valuations. We could look at markets. We could say, okay, stock market. They don't look at it. They don't care. They do. Let's be honest. They care about all of it because all of it is combined to provide for what is the economy. All of it. All of it. So they don't just leave one part out. You know, people, uh, all these talking, oh, the Fed doesn't care about the stock market. They care. They care plenty. And you know how you know they care? 
because these guys were trading on it throughout 2020 and they get kicked off because of it. So they yeah, care. And you, you know, I, I, I think it's telling if, if you if you look at Jay Powell, when he became chairman of the Fed was back in 2018 and in early 2018. And that was the last time the Fed was actually sort of trying to jack up interest rates uh, and the equities markets did not respond well. And he he pulled it right back down to zero, the short term interest rates. So he he chickened out. He got mm -hmm. scared by that. And right. and I think that tells you a lot about him as a central banker. He's not a Paul Volcker kind of inflation fighter who's going to bite the bullet and do what needs to be done. Uh, he's he seems to for whatever reason maybe maybe he's beholden to to market actors or maybe he just feels that that is a the wrong thing to do. Um, but he's he's very scared, I think, overall of, of crashing the markets again. He and, has and frankly, a very large exposure to equities through his portfolio. If you ever looked at his holdings, he's a very wealthy man with a very high exposure to equities. And, and you think that explains his, his policy decisions, his own personal portfolio? I believe it had. I do. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. No, that's great. That's wonderfully cynical. That's even more cynical than I am about these things. But I, 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 I actually have not looked at his portfolio. I should really do that. When Maybe he that came into office, I said, look at this guy's portfolio. is one of the wealthiest central bankers that has ever come into office. Huge component, while it is in index funds and, and, and some mutual funds, but a huge component of equities. Why in the hell would he want to crash markets? Yeah. Now, now no central market market. No central banker wants to crash markets. Let's say that. But here we are rolling back to a 70s kind of exposure and situation where we have a great unemployment, decent economy, uh, inflation, which is multifactored that some of the more recent, recent, recent inflation can be blamed on the Ukrainian war. Some of it can be blamed on very poor policy decisions in energy area of uh, the Biden administration. Some of it, there's plenty to go around, by the way. Some of it can be blamed on the excessive amount of, of, of stimulus that was provided through the Trump administration. Now, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter if it was the pandemic or not. It was during that time period. Uh, and, and the rest of the world and what they did with all that. So here we are in a... In, in, a, in a period uh, where, as you said, the Fed must do something about, if I'm quoting, quoting you, the Fed must do something about inflation. All it could do is, is raise short-term rates. Large part of the U.S. economy is grown dependent on low interest rates, either consciously or con unconsciously. As the Fed increases rates, those business models will be undermined and need to adapt to a new environment. So what works in this environment that's like a 70s type of stagflation-ish environment? What's going to work? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that you're going to start to see the accountants becoming very important in, in, in companies as inflation becomes more and more of an issue because they, they're going to have to sort of manipulate things to make it look like there's profits being generated and, and figure out how to, to do that. So that if you look back at the it's sort of kind of interesting, if you, if you look back at the 1970s, uh, all, most of the CEOs of companies actually were the CFOs before and had come from the accounting side of the house. And then later on, it tended to be a lot of lawyers in the in the in the eighties and nineties, and and now I'm not even sure they're all MBAs now. I guess, but uh, it's been a sort of a shift to sort of the profile, and 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 maybe that that's a harbinger of that that we'll see a, a shift to, towards that. But in terms of investing um, in this kind of environment, I think all asset classes really suffer because 
all, all the asset classes have benefited uh, either directly or indirectly from these monetary injections. Somehow the money does find its way into these different asset classes, some, some sooner and some later. Uh, it doesn't all happen at the same time. Um, and those things are going to be unwound, basically, as, as the Fed sort of tightens, if they do really tighten. But what I'm expecting to see is that the, the Fed will carry on with these very tepid rate increases, 25 basis points, maybe 50 basis points. Maybe they'll take the interest rate all the way up to 1.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and the markets are not going to respond well. And then I think they'll roll it back and they'll they'll start printing money again at, at a furious rate. Now, wait, wait. But, uh, I need to ask you this. I don't understand this. So you think that the Fed is not going to increase by the theoretical 50 basis points at a clip that somehow is being talked about and all in the markets. You're saying that they're going to be very timid and tepid about their increases and somehow markets are not going to like that or markets in general just what, no, what's, what's I th- the problem? I, th- I think, I think what you'll, and what we'll markets are we is, talking about? We're talking about the equities markets and, and the bond markets very directly. So I think what we'll see is there's going to be a few increases. So they're going to increase interest rates at, at maybe 25 basis points, 50 basis points each meeting for the next few few meetings. And the markets won't like it. They will they will crash. So I markets mean, crash are not going to like the fact that they're raising rates, period, end of sentence. Exactly. Uh-huh. And then I think the response will be is to to roll back the increases and 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 decrease interest rates again and wow. start up with with the monetary injections. I think they're going to chicken out in the fight against inflation and they're going to chicken out really quickly. Can we that's, do that's, this though? Can that can that work forever? I mean, because that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about forever. We're talking about forever low rates because if you if you're, what you're telling me is true, then they can never change their process and forever stimulating through monetary policy a la quantitative easing, also known in the old days as money printing. No, it can't last forever, and it never does. And it always it, it always ends the same way. There's only two ways out. One is you crash the markets by increasing rates, and the other one is that you have sort of a, a, a hyperinflation, and inflation really gets away from you. Uh, and you start having inflation 20, 30, 40, 50% a year. Oh. Uh, and then oh. you int- increase interest rates. So that's th- th- those, are, those are the only two ways. Either you do it now or it gets even worse. But I maybe think. are we there now? Are we at that point possibly? We're, we're, where we're we've very seen, close. I mean, Germany PPI is at 25%. That's absurd. That's absurd. Yeah. I, I mean, know we're we're very very close indeed, and and the the central banks seem to be unwilling or unable to take any sort of action. Mm. I mean, the Fed carries on talking about things, and they've they've made these very very small increases, uh, but look at the Fed's balance sheet; it hasn't contracted at all. It's still going up. It's yeah, that, that's a problem because if they don't continue buying, and there is a need because they've created the need to continue to issue debt to pay for these extraordinary expenses and that debt service is higher, that also naturally slows down the potential because now we get into higher debt as a country and more cost factors to pay for it. So it, it, it's really an ugly situation. It's been there for years. The question still remains if technology somehow magically, I don't know exactly what, can help us out of this if, if, if the deflationary forces of technology, which I think we all agree there are some in there because of the ability for technology to um, create, you know, it's a double-edged sword, create efficiencies, which is deflationary. 
um, you know, cost uh, brings cost down. Um, I want to segue over in, in a hard segue, a hard turn to. I, I think I want to talk about crypto exchanges. Because Before you do that, let, let, me, let me just say one thing, because you, you touched on a point that's very, very interesting, that, and I think most people miss that, is yes, technology is deflationary, or increases in efficiency are by definition deflationary, because you can produce more stuff at a lower cost, yeah. so prices come yeah. down. So increases in efficiency are deflationary. Now, what is really interesting is, over the course of the past 30, 40 years, what have we seen the two major things happen? One is sort of the advent of information technology and what should be much, much more efficient production, much better information, uh, much better flow of goods and much better pricing capabilities and targeting your production to demand much better because you've got much better information. So that's one major trend. The other major thing is the opening up of China as a very low cost producer of manufactured goods. Now, those two things should have driven prices way, way down positively. And I think virtually everyone would have said, that's great because I'm earning just as much as before. Maybe I'm even earning a bit more and prices are falling. And that's a great thing. Now, the people in the central banks don't feel that way. They feel deflation is an absolutely horrible thing and must be fought at all costs. And it's interesting over the course of the past 40 years, we have not seen any of that deflation, any of those deflationary benefits that we should have seen from increases productivity and the opening of China just got wasted through money printing. And so they printed just enough money to... to to hide that deflation and, and that, those productivity gains and and negate uh, any benefits from from China opening up in terms of prices and 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 the 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 most recent push to uh, have China out of the system right out of our path of manufacturing I think this this is like the the misstep that we made with green ESG. You can't necessarily take the low-cost areas out of the equation. Trust me, you're not going to want to buy a T-shirt for $220, you know? No, no. There are some people who do that, you know. There's there's some brands who focus on even higher-priced T-shirts, and sometimes they've got a nice rip in them. There's still $3 a shirt to manufacture or or less. Yeah, but they sell them for $600, which is just the most genius business model I've ever seen. Love that. Love that. Love it. Let's talk about but crypto this- exchanges. You, you talk about leaving traditional venues in the dust. So this weekend, I was at the Bitcoin, or not this weekend, this week, I was at uh, the Bitcoin 2022 conference in South Beach, Miami, uh, where, of course, the you know, all the Bitcoin bros were there and their laptops and talking about the various platforms and all of the things that are going on. Talk to me about why it is that somehow the traditional trading venues uh, need to get up to 2020s. Um, get up to 2020s. Well, you said that the 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 crypto exchange have left the traditional venues in the dust, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, what's what's happened? If you look at in in twenty twenty one, this happened for the first time. Is that the the revenues for for trading activities generated by the crypto exchanges, i.e., Binance, Coinbase, FTX, and uh, Bitstamp, and all those players, actually exceeded the revenues of all the traditional exchanges combined: Nasdaq, uh, New York Stock Exchange, ICME, Deutsche Börse, London Stock. All those players combined had lower revenues than the crypto exchanges, and pretty much Binance by itself had revenues as big as all those players combined. So the traditional exchanges have really missed out on an enormous 
enormous market that has just passed them by and that, that they are now uh, can't buy their way into because the, the valuations are so high. And so I think what we're going to start to see is these crypto exchanges start to snap up the traditional exchanges and start to invest in them. Oh. We just saw that in a, in a very small way, FTX uh, sort of investment in the investors exchange in the US. And I think we'll see more of that. We'll see more of that going that direction. Why would they want to, is, is it profitable for them or they just have so much money that they're swimming in that they're like, Let's just take it over and then convert some of the traditional traders into crypto traders. Is that the point? I think that's exactly. Uh, yes, change some of the – well, the traditional trade – it's interesting because the traditional exchanges don't have the end investor. Mm -hmm. Right, they, they, I, you and I can't become a client of Nasdaq, for example. Uh, there's just we have to go through our, our broker, so we could sign up for sure. Fidelity or Etrezma. We we can't become Nasdaq clients. With the crypto exchanges, different. They have the end retail investor, and most of the volume is coming from the retail investors in the crypto space. So uh, that is a, a a really big difference in terms of the business model. So what I would think is that the play would be for the crypto exchanges to say to all these retail investors that they have, you can also trade equities and bonds on our platform. We've already got your money. It's already here. We have a relationship with you. We're just going to cut out the broker dealers entirely. There's no need for them. Uh, mm. we just You just open an account with the exchange and you trade there. That's it. What's interesting is that uh, the, the, the regulators are taking notice. This week there was a note from the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, who said that uh, crypto platforms should be registered and regulated much like the traditional exchange. And that really hit a variety of the publicly traded platforms here, taking them down, whether it's Coinbase or Robinhood. Uh, is that something that you see as a benefit? Is it necessary? As a benefit, the regulation, but it all depends on what the regulation exactly is. <laughs> right, right. If it's a and shutdown regulation, that's no good. But yes. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a bad thing. And, and that might come, you know, and it, it might come at the behest of the central banks as well, who, who see cryptocurrencies as a, as a real competitor to their fiat currencies. You know, uh, if, if people start to really pay for things in Bitcoin in, in, in large, and they're not currently, frankly, they, they trade a lot, but they don't really it's tough to buy a pizza in Bitcoin. Though you hear stories about that from years ago, but but frankly, it's not really a payment mechanism. See, I agree with you there. It, it, if it's just an investment, everybody's going to be happy, pappy, except for the people that are trying to build the next generation of X, Y, Z on this. But once you start getting into the area of alternate currency slash payment process, it's going to spin some heads, and I just don't see them winning. I don't see how it's possible they win. It's they they won't and 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 they'll get shut down in a big big hurry. I mean, people have fought wars over the right to print money. Uh, they're certainly going to throw out a few bits of regulation to to shut down Coinbase and Binance and people like that, or or regulate it so much that it it no longer becomes a a competitor. And and the path there is is fairly clear. They're just going to say, oh, it's 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 used to finance illicit activities and terrorism and and it's allowing Russia to avoid sanctions and things like that. And we're going to shut it down. So they've they've got the story already prepared to do. And that. they've it happened. I mean, we see China shut it down and mining process and and, and all that. We've seen. Other countries take a look at this. I mean, it still goes on to a degree, but it's still a finable uh, a criminal offense in some areas. Absolutely. Around yeah. the world. Yeah. And I, th I think it might well expand uh, beyond that. But but in, in the meantime, these, these outfits, especially the biggest crypto exchange, Binance, 
is making a ton of yeah. cash. Ton. A ton of cash. Just just and and has really bad customer service and has systems that have outages all the time. And nevertheless, they've they've got a very loyal customer base. And uh, well, there's, there's, seems- you could sit back on your couch and trade through either algos or you know sitting in a in a in a Reddit forum to get it's gambling is what it is uh, to a degree. Some of the things that go on and it's very profitable because without regulation, there are no caps on what fees could be. And if there are only limited places in order to do this trading, they have a total monopoly on the, on this. Therefore your trading fees can be ridiculous. These trading fees that you pay on the major platforms are what we were paying in the fifties and sixties to trade stocks. And, and that was when you had to have runners and you had to have uh, trade books and you had to have paperwork and multiple people to do the trade and then take the risk on it versus today where it's all technology based and no cost to do it. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's why they've got just an enormous profit margin. Beautiful. But like I said, their, their customer, I mean, the, the place you could spend money is, I guess, advertising. So you need to do customer acquisition. You need to let people know that you're there. Uh, you might spend money on on the technology infrastructure, but frankly, a lot of these guys haven't really invested that much in it. Um, and then customer service, uh, and those are the the only real spending points that you have. Customer service is abysmal at most of these places. I mean, Coinbase's customers are, are famous for being furious and not being able to contact anyone ever. Um, though they've, I think, had some efforts to improve that recently. But uh, in general, the crypto exchanges don't have that, so they, their cost base is extremely low. Yeah, good uh, margins, and, good margins. But that, yeah. that again, will come under pressure once there are more exchanges, competition, potentially regulations uh, that come out in scrutiny uh, of the firms. But it just can't last forever. Octavio Morenzi from uh, Opimus. Uh, we're going to have all the information on the show notes for episode number 761 on the disciplinedinvestor.com. Hey, I, I really appreciate it. Interesting discussion. Uh, and and I, I thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Andrew. Hey, great job. Thanks. And you're quite welcome. I think that was a pretty good conversation covering an incredibly wide range of topics and some things that I believe are probably going to be important for us to recognize, understand as we navigate through this very, very difficult time especially if some of the things that uh, our guest here has talked about with regard to a uh, probably no end in sight to the idea that, well, rates have to go up and we're going to have to do something about it over time. And really, we just can't sit on the sidelines anymore and just hope for the best because inflation is probably going to be out of control for some time to come. So something to chew on, something that we don't want to think about and uh, clearly don't want to turn into a Zimbabwe situation where we have inflation at 50 plus percent in there, in that case, you know, per day. And here, you know, even, even the idea of having inflation running above 10% per year for a few years is pretty substantial and very disturbing. So the Fed does have to get on it, and I think that's what they're trying to do. But the question is, are they doing it in the right way with all the things that are in front of them right now? Or should this uh, the impact of, of what has happened over the last number of years really be reversed very slowly over time to allow for markets to adjust properly? 
We shall see. Hey, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, of course, every single week coming to you and you being there is something very special to me and I hope very special to you as well. Until next week, thanks for joining me. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.